Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. In 2007, Lisa Lawler was struck with a thunderbolt when her husband confessed that he had embezzled money, a total of $2.5 million, from the company he once worked for. He also told her he had been having an affair with one of her best friends. Lisa divorced her husband, but because she had signed their joint tax return, the IRS sent her a $384,000 bill for taxes, penalties, and interest. On top of all of that came the social stigma. How could she not have known what her husband was doing? But Lisa is strong and a survivor. She set out not only to help herself, but to help others with first a blog, then an online support group, and now with a book, The White Collar Wives Survival Guide. We are excited to have Lisa talk with us today. Lisa, thank you so much for being here with us today. Charlene, I appreciate you taking the time and shining a spotlight on the subject. Of course. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell us how you met your husband. I met my husband, believe it or not, when we were still in high school. We were seniors and soon to go our separate ways, and we kept in touch. And then in our early 20s, we reconnected, and we were married by our mid-20s. And we remained married for 26 great years, well, mostly great, uh, until we came to uh, a rather large bump in the road. Uh, What were those early years like? You know, those years were terrific. Uh, We didn't get pregnant until 14 years into our marriage, so, you know, our working lives kept us busy and in sync with one another after hours by seeing friends and family and taking long hikes with our dogs and just doing kind of the regular things that young married people do. And when our son came along, we were over the moon, but it did change our lives, of course. Mm -hmm. But by then, we were ready. Right, right. So it's a great addition. Now, did you ever suspect what he was doing that he might be embezzling from his company? You know, this is such a good question, Charlene, because by all accounts, he loved his job, loved everyone he worked with, and he was held in very high regard with his colleagues. And we hear that this is often the case. Um, whenever, you know, HR people speak to me about, you know, how to, how to spot a crook in the hiring process, I said, you know, you've got to be really careful because these guys are charming, and it's usually your best hires and your best workers that are stealing from you. Now, it took uh, two years from the time that he told you that he embezzled in 2007 until he was actually indicted and arrested. What were those years like? It must have been agonizing. Well, the waiting is the hardest part, and in connecting with so many other a white collar wife through the years, this is universal. The waiting to know what exactly are the charges and how do they translate into uh, prison time and restitution. And oftentimes, it, it's the first time, once an indictment comes in, it's the first time we can really get to the truth mm-hmm. of, of what went down. But that waiting time, the two years, some wait even longer. Mm-hmm. But it took the grand jury two years to indict him um you know he had told me a little bit he had confessed a little bit to that uh to the crime itself but i took me forever to get him to tell me the entire truth 
I mean, did, did you feel uh, that he felt you needed the money? Is that why he was embezzling? No, across the board. In fact, I, my latest blog is titled, you know, White Collar Crimes are Crimes of Greed, Not Need. Mm. And I think this is why the public has such disdain for these crimes, because they're not based on need. They're based on, on the wanting of more and bigger and better. And I think that, you know, we as a society have um, set the standard and measure of success monetarily rather than anything else. And I think we really need to re-examine that. So that is the motivator. It's more, bigger, better, not need. Now, of course, this wasn't the only thing you were dealing with at that time. You had a father who had Alzheimer's. Uh, of course, you still had to parent your son. Uh, how did you manage all of that, Lisa? Where did where did your strength come from during this time? You know, that's a great question, too. People always used to say, oh, my gosh, you're so strong. And it's incredible. You hear this time and again from people that have been through, you know, tragedy or, 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 or just really harrowing experiences in their lives. You don't really have a choice. You know, you have to rise to the occasion because if you don't, everything collapses around you. So I think it was just based on the fact that I had to get everyone through this. Uh, my father's Alzheimer's was not something that could be put on hold. Um, my son, getting my son through this, this horrific, you know, transition from secure family life into total obliteration was not easy. And I, I also had to still deal with myself as well. So, yeah, my plate was full, and it was tough. Exactly, sure. So how did your relatives and your friends react to all of this going on? Well, it's interesting that my two sisters were, were completely supportive. Um, my husband and I had separated before this happened for other reasons, and uh, this embezzlement case came on the heels of that Situation, so they they just rose to the occasion, stood up, stood by me, helped me walk every day, and my very close friends, of course, stood by me. And uh, there was a time in the beginning when I shut down and shut everyone out. I was just trying to cope and come to terms with with what was happening. And I think you know we all cope with with these things differently, but I think you do emerge stronger. But it's just pulling from deep within to find out who you're going to be and how you're going to handle this. You know, they say it's not the knocking down that defines you. It's the, how you get back up again, and that's so true. Now, did the separation um, result from the affair that he had with your friend? It did. I was very patient for a while. <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, this is such a cliche. I'll just wait it out. It's a midlife crisis thing, and you know, I wasn't happy about it. Uh, but at the same time, and I've written about this, everything else about my life was terrific, except for the fact that my husband was in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I waited it out, and then on the heels of, uh, you know, I, I had finally waited long enough and booted him out, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to wait for you any longer, uh, because apparently it was very serious. And a month later, you know, I learned of the investigation, and that was really the straw that broke the camel's back, and I said, you know, no, I've got to remove myself from this entire situation. So yeah, it was um, it was a lot to deal with, and I I was in shock. You know, here I was waiting for him uh, to snap out of everything, but now we had the feds involved and yeah. off the, the races. 
Now, you relocated from Cape Cod to Austin, and, and why did you do that? Why was that necessary? Well, our family home was actually in Central Mass, in Stowe, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And after my divorce, I uh, sold the house and realized I couldn't afford to live in our community any longer. And I knew that um, there was no way my husband was not going to be sent away to prison. And as upset and angry as I was with him, and even though our marriage was over, I, I felt that it was only right for the opportunity to be provided for my son to have a relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. And I knew when this mess was done, he was not going to be able to, to find work in our New England community. Uh, so I moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, and then I ended up being here until my father died six years and went back to Massachusetts. And then I was on Cape Cod and, uh, for three years and then just recently came back to Austin. Mm-hmm. Now, Lisa, when did you decide to start the blog? That was in 2013, Charlene. That was a few years after I kind of had absorbed everything and been through everything. And it began as kind of a vent. This is what happened to me. I need to vent it out. I need to just put it out into the universe. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely if others who had been through this reached out? And they did. There was reach back. And at first there was just four women or so that reached back. And then there were a dozen. And mm. so after that, I began the support group. Now, do they fall into any category? I mean, I know uh, that there are women whose husbands are not white-collar professionals who have been in this situation. So it's a wide, uh, it's a very diverse group of, of women, correct? It is. You know, we're over 100 members now, and we are uh, global. We've got wow. thousands from four continents, and they're still, the numbers are still climbing. So the diversity, yeah, it's all over the place. We've got, of course, executives. We have CEOs. We have business owners. We have uh, small-time bookkeepers. We have one woman's husband with a tow truck uh, you know, company owner, and he was uh, putting in nefarious billings on car crashes that never happened, mm. pickups that never happened. Um, there's you know, men who own auto body shops who do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We have small country doctors. We have highfalutin uh, hospital-connected doctors. It runs the gamut. You know, it's fraud comes in any kind of way through uh, nefarious buildings or embezzlement. Uh, it, 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 there's no there's no one uh, area of white-collar crime that kind of tops the list. And I find it interesting when you were talking about how it's greed, not need. Is there something about society and, and in fact, society worldwide that's uh, feeding into that, that, you know, people feel they need more and if they can't get it in their job, they're uh, going to do something possibly criminal to get that those funds? Well, going back to what I said before, you know, we as a society have set that benchmark of what success is and what it looks like, what it means. And it's a matter of, you know, in the 60s, keeping up with the Joneses was, was having a nice car in your driveway like your neighbor did. And now it's about being top dog, you know, men and women across the board. It's about being the best, being better, and how we identify that. Um, and we identify that monetarily. And if you're not doing well monetarily, then somehow you have not reached that apex of success 
you know, quite possibly that your peers have. Um, so I always say it's not a personal problem. It's more of a societal issue that we have to deal with. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, are there any women who have uh, husbands that have been in the, you know, to flip this around, uh, husbands who have found out that their wives have done uh, these sorts of things, these sorts of crimes? Oh, sure. There is. Uh, there was a shocker in our town that uh, about six or seven months after my husband uh, was indicted, one of the pillars of our community was found to have. Uh, she was indicted for embezzling from her company. She was a small-time bookkeeper accountant, and she also kept the books for a local Boy Scout, Mm. and she had also been embezzling from them. So you could have knocked everyone over with a feather. She was the most outstanding citizen in our community. Uh, So, yeah, Kelly Paxton with uh, Pink Collar Crime, she runs a website. She's also a forensic accountant who uh, focuses solely on pink-collar criminals, mm-hmm. as she calls. So, yeah, it, it's mostly you hear about the men because they're in higher standing usually and can pull off higher schemes, higher amounts. Uh, but, yeah, it, there's, it does not. This crime does not differentiate people that are inclined or inclined, no matter what the gender. Now, what are the biggest mistakes that a spouse makes in a situation like this? Well, the first thing I would say is that denial, um, the denial that, you know, that he's a really good guy. We hear that a lot when the women first approach me. Some women will come in and say, you know, he's innocent. He's told me he's innocent. He's a really good guy. He would never do this. And then, of course, once an indictment comes in and you can connect the dots, paper trails don't lie. And the feds do not, as a rule, pursue cases that they don't think they can win. So I think that denial... Um, you lose a lot of time in being proactive and how to deal with this because there are so many moving parts. But if you spend time in denial, then you're really, you know, that's a huge setback for, for getting on down the road. And I also definitely recommend divorce because once civil assets, seizure, and forfeiture come into play, unless your assets are separated as soon as possible, then you are prone to, to lose everything. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, a lot of women sign the joint tax returns without, uh, you know, really thinking about that. Um, Is that a a danger? I mean, uh, signing any paper that you might not know everything about? That's a great question, Charlene. Here's the problem. You know, marriage is first and foremost a legal partnership. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, a romantic involvement. And I think people lose sight of that fact. So, yes, you're, if you file jointly and sign your, your tasks with your husband, no matter what's on that form, and even more importantly, no matter what's not on that form, is uh, something you're held responsible for. Mm. So most of these guys do not claim illicit funds on their tax returns. Right, they are right. Illicit, but by omission, you're still... You're still on the hook for half of that. And it is shocking when women discover this. And then you have to apply for innocent spouse status. And while there are paper trails that lead to a perp's guilt, there is no paper trail that leads to an innocent spouse's um, innocence. Mm. So it becomes very difficult. Uh, it depends on who your agent is, who's handling your case, whether they believe you or not. Mm. But it's very difficult to prove that you are innocent, but it can be done. Now, 
how did you deal with people who said, Lisa, you had to know? How could you not know this? Well, most of the people that know me knew that I didn't know it, close circles. But as you go out to the outer circle, people are baffled. And it's understandable on one level because they forget that your husband was pulling in a very handsome income to begin with. In fact, one of the agents I worked with said, you know, I can't understand if you weren't living off of illicit funds, then what, how are you paying your bills? And I said, you know, my husband made a very good living. Mm. Uh, and that's how we paid our bills. And she said, I, that never crossed my mind. So I think people are so quick to judge. Um, my ex-husband's funds were never commingled into our into our family funds because I didn't know about it. Of course, he didn't want me to know about it. But I think oftentimes, it's been my experience with a lot of the women that I mentor that those funds do get commingled. Mm. And when that happens, that's a whole other nightmare to have to deal with, uh, whether the wife knew or not. I, I don't think that wives that know are complicit, but mm. I don't, I think that it, in some cases, it's I don't want to know, but in most cases, these guys are such master manipulators that they can say, this is a windfall, or I have 10 new clients that just came in, or I wow. some stock options came in. Very rarely will a husband want to cop to this because they're not only trying to impress others, they're trying to pull themselves off as these great breadwinners and providers. So, yeah, it's very difficult when people say, how could you not know? And the question that I turn around and say is, how could he not know that this would destroy his family? That's a more provable question. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about some of the feedback that you've received from some of the women that you're mentoring. Oh, it's, it's interesting. It took them a long time. I've had to blog for an awfully long time for them to find me because you have to work your way up into the Google ranks. But once they did, universally, the first thing I hear is, I feel as if I've been thrown a lifesaver. I had no idea that there were others like me out there, which is surprising because you can't turn on the news anymore without finding someone who's going to jail for embezzlement or lying or cheating on their taxes. Uh, but it is such an isolating event that when women do reach out, they're thrilled to find others that have gone through this um, and, and can guide them through. Mm-hmm. So I wrote my book, uh, that was kind of nuts to bolts from, from A to Z, how to get through this mess. But yeah, the, the feedback's been really great, and the media's been picking it up. And so a conversation has begun, and I can't thank you and others enough for helping us to begin this conversation of, of the problem that it is. It's not just a corporate problem. It's not just a personal problem. Like I said, it's a societal issue that we need to address. Have you met any women who stand by their men and, you know, refuse to believe that they're guilty and, you know, just hang in there? Yes. In fact, early on, I had to make the decision of whether I was going to have women that were still married and women that were divorced in the same group. Mm-hmm. And I decided to go ahead and, and, and make that a mix because... That's not really the issue. The issue is to support one another going through the very similar issue. And sometimes along the way, the women will file for divorce. They'll, they'll finally understand what, is, what has been done to them. You know, it's an egregious familial betrayal. Mm-hmm. Trust. 
And so there was a time when it would kind of be up against them, and I would have to quell that and mediate that. But now, you know, it's been years, and now people understand. You know, when I screen them into the group, I let them know that there's a mix of married and unmarried women, and we all kind of accept that. And it's been fine. It's worked out well. So how do they do they interact on your on your blog? I know you have the online support group. Is there a way that they come on and they can, you know, chat with each other or share their thoughts? Yes. The blog is on my website mm-hmm. and then the private support group is run through Facebook. I see. So you have to be screened into the group. Uh, you can't just jump into the group. So I screen everyone that comes into the group. I verify their husband's crimes. And then, you know, with 100 people in this group, anyone can jump on at any time. We used to hold regular Sunday evening group meetings. But now with global membership, you know, the time changes, time differences, it's very difficult. So people will post a topic and we'll chime in about it or I'll post a topic. Um, and it works very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talk about the global aspect of it, Lisa, are there certain countries that surprised you where these women were living? Well, you know, it's interesting because Australia, um, when you think of westernized, you know, countries that are similar to the United States, you think of Australia, or, or I do, mm-hmm. and surprisingly enough, a, a lot of the women, uh, foreign members, um, are based out of Australia. Really? So, yeah, yeah, which is very interesting. Uh, in fact, a PhD student reached out to me recently because she wanted to include my blog as research for her dissertation. Mm. <laughs> right? It's terrific. Uh, so, again, you know, kind of this emerging new area. Some have called it a new area of the law, and I always say, there's the one is the U.S. Constitution and due process, the new area of the law. Right, right. <laughs> so let's talk about it, you know. Let's get the message out. I'm doing uh, some work with the ASCE, uh, which is the Association for Certified, Certified Fraud Examiners, and we're beginning to have that conversation, too, uh, about, you know, getting the message out and let's talk about it. Uh, other than just talk about software of how to, you know, spot discrepancies or how to best follow uh, regulations. We need to have the human side of this conversation about the consequences of fraud on the job and what it not only means to you, but it means to your family members. How difficult is it, Lisa, to move forward in relationships after an experience like this? I mean, especially since, you know, there are all these online dating sites that... Uh, you know, even older women are going to to meet people. Uh, after an experience like this, it, it must shake your trust. How do you get that back and, and trust uh, when you meet someone? Well, you're spot on about that. The trust issue is, is very, very uh, daunting because, you know what they say, you think you know someone. <laughs> right. And to have this going on right into your nose is uh, it's frightening. And it is a leap of faith. I think waking up every morning, in some instances, is a leap of faith. But for me, you know, I've been independent for so many years now that it just even that portion of it, um, I worry sometimes about, about that. But I'm just actually now re-entering into the dating world after many years. <laughs> Uh, for the most part, my work and raising my son took up most of my time. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm finally entertaining that. And I think with some trepidation, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I know what I want. I know what I'm looking for. I know the questions to ask. And then again, the rest of it is just a leap of faith. Well, and how valuable your experience will be as you go through this to uh, talk with other women who are thinking of dipping their toe back in. Right. You know, I think that there's a lot of great books out there about this, uh, dating after um, trauma, mm-hmm. uh, about widows and widowers that are, that are jumping back into that, and my hat's off to them. Um, I, I think that there's a certain level of maturity that has to come into play. Right. And again, you know, I can't hold others accountable for what my husband did to me. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. But I think also, um, I think you get to a certain age and you know what you'll tolerate and what you won't. Um, but yeah, the trust issue does loom large, I have to say, that, that that's an issue. But that's, that's on me. So uh, tell us a little bit about the book, why you decided to write it and what you hope it will, will it do. Well, I was getting so many of the same questions over and over from the women that I was mentoring that I decided just to put it all down in a book. And, you know, from, from divorce to guilt by association to how public our lives become, as private citizens, our lives become very public. Um, how to deal with our children, how to tell your, your children, um, how to keep routines as normal as possible uh, amidst something, you know, amidst, in the middle of something that's completely not normal. But there are certain key factors that you have to keep in place to get through an ordeal like this and normalcy, as much normalcy as possible. One of the chapters is titled Accepting the Unacceptable. And I think any time you're faced with something daunting in life, that you, you have to accept it before you can deal with it effectively. Mm-hmm. But that's a big piece of that. Then I go into um, a little bit about attorneys. I go into the infant spouse tax issues. Um, I go into reentry. We go into the prison issues, and then we go into reentry, which is a lot of these women who stay married, their husbands are coming home at some point. And that's... You know, you've got your honeymoon period after prison, and after that, you've got real life. Right. You've got an ex-convict of a white-collar crime who's used to a certain stage in life who now can't uh, find a job or get hired as a dishwasher. So that comes with it a whole other set of issues that need to be dealt with, and it, it's, it's tough. Uh, do you, Lisa, do you have people approach you to say... You know, my sister or, you know, someone I know, a good friend is going through this and maybe she's not ready to really face it or listen to it, but they come to you as sort of a, how do I get them to realize that, you know, my friend or my relative needs help? Um, It seems to me buying your book would be a good first step to give to someone. Um, but are there? Have you ever had inquiries like that from people who know someone who needs help, and and the person may be reluctant to reach out? I have. It's interesting because I'm known as the expert, and because there has not really been anyone advocating for uh, white collar wives until I came along, stumbled into it. Uh, but yeah, I have had friends and family reach out to say, "Look, I've got a friend or a friend of, of a friend who needs to talk to you." Um, you don't know where to begin when you get hit with this. How do I start? Mm-hmm. What's gonna ha- Most of them want to know what can I expect, what's going to happen, what should I do? So for those women that are ready to jump head in, we just dive in. Uh, and But for those who are in denial still, that takes a little more work. 
Um, and, and I do go further down the road with them to let them have a peek into what's going to happen if you do A or B and what's going to happen if you don't. So that's always a big help because now with this roster of over 100 women that we now have kind of this empirical data on uh, what their trajectory is if they do A or B or if they don't, it, it's nice to be able to show and not just tell. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, this is so interesting, and I think you are doing such a service to so many uh, women and possibly some men out there who need this support. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, I will include some links uh, with this uh, podcast story on Women Around Town so people can find your blog, your book, your Facebook group if they uh, want to uh, join that online support group also. Uh, So thank you again um, for being here and spending time with us. Thank you, Charlene. Appreciate it very much. So I am Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and we have been speaking with Lisa Lawler, the author of uh, The White Collar Wives Survival Guide. Thanks again, Lisa. Thank you.